It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, this is Dre, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode of Pod Save the People, we have the news with me, Clint, Brittany, and Sam. As always, we also have Disha Dyer, who was the last social secretary in the Obama White House. And then we have Keila Crane, Assistant General Counsel at the NAACP, and then Ari Kalu, a Yale Law student, who will talk to us about the work that they're doing around the census. Before we jump in today, I'll talk about the difference between hope as work and hope as magic. That there are some people who talk about being hopeless. There are some people who are pessimistic in this moment. And I would say that a lot of those people think about hope as being magic, that things will just get better because we want them to get better or won't take any effort. And the reality is that hope is work. That when I say I'm hopeful, I understand hope to be the understanding that our tomorrows can be better than our todays. And it only gets there because people put in work. That the people before us didn't just believe in a future that was equitable and just, and it just got a little bit better by sheer belief. It was work that made it happen. So make sure that you understand hope is work and I hope is magic. Let's get to it. And now the news with me, Clint Smith III, our resident academic, Sam Sinyangwe, our resident data scientist, and Brittany Packnett, previous member of the Ferguson Commission and appointed by President Obama to the Task Force on 21st Century Policing and a current leader in the education community. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Ms. Packetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third on Twitter and Instagram. And this is DeRay at DeRay, D-E-R-A-Y. So I am feeling particularly devastated uh, this week because last week the United States men's national soccer team failed to qualify for the World Cup for the first time in 32 years. They lost a game uh, against Trinidad and Tobago 2-1, and uh, as a result of uh, Panama winning and Honduras winning, they got eliminated. And uh, this is like a really terrible thing. I grew up playing soccer my whole life. and I've never lived at a time when the U.S. has not been part of the World Cup. Um, and and there's, you know, a lot of conversation going on about why this happened. But uh, it's always important to shout out and make clear that the U.S. women's national soccer team does not fail us. They hold it down. Three-time World Cup champions. But the men, they've been slipping And there's like a whole sort of reassessment that needs to happen in U.S. soccer, particularly for me around the fact that most people in the U.S., if you want to play soccer, you have to pay a lot of money for it, uh, which eliminates the access to the sport for like a lot of black and brown kids. And uh, I think that that's a huge talent pool of folks who are not given access to the sport that could make us better. Um, But, you know, that's another sort of passion. and, and pet peeve of mine is is uh, making sure that we get more black and brown folks into the sport that I love so much. But uh, this, the fact that we're missing the World Cup is uh, not going to help that effort. So I, uh, you know, I appreciate your patriotism, Clint. I 
you know, I also grew up playing soccer uh, throughout sort of my, since I guess kindergarten and till college. And my dad's Tanzanian and, you know, he, yeah, he grew up playing soccer. Um, you know, I was one of the few kids in the early, early days, you know, when I was in elementary school who played soccer, because at that point, particularly in, in the South, it was all about football. Uh, it was all about basketball, like soccer hadn't yet hit the radar. And then at some point around middle school, like everything changed and soccer became cool again, or for the first time, you know, the U S was sort of joining the rest of the world and recognizing soccer as, uh, a sport where really it is like the largest sport in the world. But, you know, I long gave up on the U.S. really being the team that I was trying to watch all the time, uh, in part because they never really demonstrated the level of skill as many other nations. You know, I, I always would look at Brazil as an incredible nation, a lot of black and brown players, you know, a history of soccer, like it was just a, a better game to watch. Uh, and then later on, looking at some of the African teams coming up, Senegal, Ghana, uh, so, you know, I sort of gave up. The U.S. always would, wouldn't make it out of the group stage, maybe make it to the round of 16, but like never had like what it took. Uh, and I think this is another example of that. It's like something needs to change. And I think, you know, the U.S. definitely has now a large group of people who are good at playing soccer. I don't know where sort of this bottleneck is occurring, where like that talent just doesn't seem to make it into the national team, but hopefully we'll see some changes. Well, for one thing, it means we can't gentrify the... Uh the community and neighborhood soccer fields, which I know has been happening in D.C. where I live. And it's been very frustrating for a lot of people. So I know virtually nothing about soccer, um, but I do know that, Clint, you still play soccer, don't you? Isn't that you? That's true, right? Don't you play soccer? I do. Right now? I'm in my uh, my old man soccer league. And so we just had a game today. I scored two goals out here trying to relive the did dream. Did you really? The dream. I did. It's not a good, I mean. Look at you. Oh, it, mind you, it is like not a competitive League. Do you not know, downplay like, <laughs> your successes, Clint. We are here to you know, celebrate your successes. I appreciate. Oh, you, see, I was but... see. It's good you said that because I was about to be shady. <laughs> you are always shady. What's <laughs> it? What's the name of the team? Uh, t- Orange jerseys. I don't even know if we have a team. We just <laughs> oh, like with the orange on, jerseys. Okay. Once you get older, it's like a very different after game sort of ritual than than you used to. Like back in the day, we would like play three games in a day and then like go eat McDonald's. And now you play like one, you know, 50 minute game. And then I'm sore for three <laughs> days after. And I got to like ice my body down, rub it down in Bengay, <laughs> take a salt bath. I mean, it's, it's sad. It's sad what happens in old age. But last thing I'll say. The only way is, that could be older is if you all went to a buffet afterwards. Yes, I was like Golden no. Corral afterwards. I'm, I'm <laughs> Golden team Corral. Golden Corral. People fake on Golden Corral, but I am team Golden Corral. Speaking of making sure brown and black folks can access major sports leagues, uh, Catalyst.org recently put out a new report on women of color in the United States. Now, I often remind people that I choose not to use the term minority uh, because people of color are actually the global majority. 
I understand that we are not yet the majority in the United States, um, but I, I don't like the idea of being minor, knowing that in a global society, we are part of something larger. Um, and we also will not be, quote unquote, minorities in the United States for much longer. So according to this report, women of color will be the majority of all women in the United States by 2060. Right now, white women make up just shy of 62 percent of the U.S. population um, and women of color. So that's Latinas, Black women, Asian women, American Indian women, um, Native Hawaiian, Native Alaskan women, and or women who um, are two or more races, uh, we will make up about 56% of the population by 2060. And so, you know, in general, arguments about our humanity and whether or not we matter are fruitless. We are clearly here. We are not going anywhere. Um, The population of Latinas and Asian women will increase dramatically. I think this last point is really important because Asian women are often overlooked, but they'll make up nearly 25%. uh, Well, they'll see a nearly 25% increase in the labor force. Um, And data disaggregation within the Asian community is really important when you think about outcomes uh, for people given various nationalities. This kind of data really behooves people who lead and run institutions, organizations, corporations to take women of color seriously. We are still woefully underrepresented in the STEM field, similarly in workforce leadership. We have seen women of color, all but black women, actually increase educational attainment over the last few years. But women of color make up uh, just 3% of executive or C-suite level roles in corporations. Um, And less than 4% of board seats around the country are held by women of color. So certainly a lot of work to do. And my hope is that Organizations and corporations can go beyond mere diversity, as we've discussed before, um, but really get toward inclusion and equity so that your background is not a determinant in your future success and that women of color will be proportionally represented in these leadership roles. So, Brittany, that was interesting what you said around uh, representation of uh, women of color in executive positions. I just wanted to follow up with some data on uh, elected positions. And so, you know, wholeads.us, which is an incredible site, which looks at the race and gender uh, demographics of all elected officials, local, state and federal. uh, They found that 71 percent of all elected officials are men. So only about 29 percent are women. Uh, and that women of color are only 4% of all elected officials. Uh, so, you know, you have a situation where the population is uh, approaching a majority of uh, people of color and the female population being majority women of color. Uh, and yet the, among elected officials, women of color are, uh, you know, barely represented at all. And so the question is, how do we ensure that um there, these barriers are being broken down and that there are clear pathways in order for uh, women of color in the party, in the Democratic Party in particular, but uh, writ large to have uh, a platform and pathways into uh, these types of positions. Yeah, these numbers are really interesting. And, and I've, I've heard the uh, conversation around, you know, as all of us have that the by, I think, 2043 is was what Sam said, the the majority of the country will be, you know, quote, um, minority groups. Uh, and I think that's interesting and, and something that I think about whenever I hear that uh, sort of talking point, if you will, brought up is is the way that the line of whiteness always moves, right? And so I'm, you know, when the Italians 
first came to the United States, they weren't considered white. When the Irish first came to the United States, they weren't considered white. But whiteness moves throughout, you know, generations in order to maintain systems of power and, and stratification. And uh, there's a great book on this uh, called How the Irish Became White. Uh, it was written in the 90s, but, you know, obviously is still very applicable. And it sort of talks about the way that um, this line of what was, who was considered white and who wasn't considered white shifted um, throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. And and I'm curious, you know, if we move over the next few decades to see the lines of whiteness moving to include certain demographics of people that weren't previously included before, like some members of the uh, Latino community and and potentially the Asian community. So I think that's something important to be mindful of. Uh, and I think that we see it to some extent today, right? You know, we kind of mentioned uh, before that f- folks like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, um, but for their last names, they largely sort of operate in the world as white people. And I think there are people in the world who don't have, uh, you know, traditionally uh, Latino last names who who pass in the world as as white folks. So that's always something to keep in mind when we hear about the uh, majority minority conversation. What's interesting about this question about population growth is that what's often not talked about is the group that's growing the fastest are actually multiracial Americans, and there hasn't been a whole lot of research on the. Uh, racial attitudes and how folks identify uh, who are multiracial, uh, in part because it is such a diverse group. So you have folks who are, you know, combination of many different things, you know, Asian and black or, you know, Latino and white. Um, And so it is such a diverse group and every different uh, combination in different contexts uh, identify in different ways. Uh, And so it it allows for this type of flexibility that uh, can actually be a risk uh, in terms of leading to a a result that you talked about, Clint, which is uh, people passing as white in a way that actually preserves uh, whiteness as sort of this dominant majority group uh, and leaves folks out who have actually have, you know, heritage that is, uh, that is people who are people of color actually end up getting identified as white all the more easier. And so the question is, how do we uh, get to a place where we're building solidarity across many different groups and preventing this type of phenomenon from continuing to happen as it happened in the context of, you know, Irish people and uh, Italians and others. I'm interested in the implications of this. It is fascinating to hear the numbers, both that you provided, Brittany, and and then the additional context that you provided, Sam, and then uh, Clint is always helping us like extrapolate this to sort of a, the macro narrative is that I've been fascinated recently with public health and clinical trials. Like there's all this stuff around public health and access that I am, that I'm more recently like starting to know and understand and, and just fascinated by. And I, when I was a chief human capital in the school system in Baltimore, I managed our healthcare. So I knew a little bit then, but what I'll say about this is that um, in 2016, there were 22 new drugs that were approved by the FDA and their clinical trials for all those drugs. And in those trials, 48% of the participants were women and only 24% were non-white. So you think about like the, the percentage of women was actually relatively high, right? Given the history of the FDA for sure. Uh, and there's a law that passed in the 90s that required women and minorities to be participants. But the number of non-white people is actually not as high as it should be. It should be at least around 30%. And the 2016 numbers are the best numbers uh, almost in the history of the FDA. And you think about what happens when, as Brittany, you talked about, like the number of non-white women is going to 
far surpass white women soon. And what it means when non-white women, non-white people are left out of like the way we construct society. And I just use the clinical trials as like an example, like we approve medicine and like aren't including a whole set of people proportionately. And the impact that that has uh, like on health, on education, on safety uh, is momentous. So like starting here by understanding the numbers and then thinking about the impact has me fascinated. So my piece of news is an article that just came out in The Intercept, which is focused on a detainee, somebody who was detained by ICE in a immigrant detention center. And what's interesting about this article is it it highlights an issue that has been going on in immigration detention, uh, which is the practice of having uh, detainees work uh, while incarcerated there for about a dollar a day, a little less than a dollar a day uh, in total pay. And this is interesting because a lot of the conversation about prison labor, and, and I know we've talked about this on the pod before, uh, has to do with prisons. Uh, and in particular, this exception in the 13th Amendment, where which you know is the amendment that allowed for emancipation, abolished slavery, but left this exception for people who've been convicted of a crime. And what's clear is that even in contexts where people have not been convicted of a crime, they're still uh, performing labor uh, for no pay or for, you know, very, you know, cents an hour or a dollar a day. And, you know, this happens, there have been articles that have come out about rehab centers where people are sent to rehab centers to, to do labor. And if they uh, protest that labor or refuse to do the labor, they can be sent to jail there are articles about people doing work in jails who have not yet been convicted of a crime. And now we're hearing about immigration detention centers where currently there's a quota for at least 34,000 people to be detained at, on any given day in immigrant detention. Most of that is run by private prisons. And in that context, we're seeing these private corporations profiting off of uh, having immigrants perform labor for almost nothing. Uh, and What's interesting about this is actually the practice about what happens when somebody refuses uh, to do that labor. And in particular, in this, in the context of, of this detention center, somebody shouted, no work, no pay, uh, and protested the labor and actually got put in solitary confinement for 30 days as a consequence. Uh, and so, you know, this is definitely happening. This is something that needs more attention because it is, the system of prison labor is much broader uh, than just the context that oftentimes gets brought up in the context of you know state and federal prisons, but actually extends uh, to jails and immigrant detention centers and all of these other contexts uh, where we're seeing people doing work for you know far less than minimum wage. This made me extremely upset. First of all, we shouldn't be engaging in solitary confinement anymore at a bare minimum. Um, beyond that, though, I mean, you know, to see. <sighs> this person be thrown in solitary consignment for a month's time for an act of protest that was based in real truth and righteousness frustrates me to no end, um, not just because of the way he was treated, but because of the utter hypocrisy. You know, America is a protest. Like the United States of America is a big middle finger to the British. Your founding fathers were protesters. They were traitors. They were treasonous. And yet here we all sit. And somehow it only seems to be a problem when those protesting are the people whose subjugation either perpetuates the power or who are meant to be pawns of the powerful. So black folks, women, trans people, people who are incarcerated, 
We talk about this all the time, but it is deeply frustrating and clearly happening at all levels in ways that we can see and not see that in a country that exists because of protest, we are so quick to silence it when it comes from people that we need to use and abuse for for the benefit of the powerful. I mean, I just like... I don't even know if I have much else to say because I was so angered by reading this. And it feels like every time we talk about or we learn more about this so-called criminal justice system, um, every round goes higher and every layer gets deeper and deeper into just how disrespectful we are to folks who deserve their dignity. Yeah, so a couple things. Uh, So one, the prison system, the private prison system that is uh, has engaged in this behavior is core civic and core civic is actually just the correction corporation of America renamed and rebranded. So the correction corporation of America has had so much bad press over the last few decades that recently, I believe it was either earlier this year or last year, they, they completely sort of rebranded, changed their logo, <laughs> changed their name and tried to work. And we're like, but you're the same exact company, right? And so, you know, it, it is clear that they are wow. cognizant of how uh, how they are perceived, justly so, in the sort of broader public. And part of what they're trying to do is uh, secretly sort of shift their the public perception of them by pretending as if they're a different organization. And this is something that we've seen. The GL Group, who's the other large pri- private prison uh, company, did the exact same thing. So this is a, a move that these groups make continuously, but it's important to know that they're changing their name and they're changing their brand, but they're not changing their behavior. And what we know about solitary confinement is that in 2011, the UN said that solitary confinement should be banned, that it was torture. We've had report after report after report come out from academics, uh, government officials on local, state, federal levels who who have talked about how solitary confinement for more than just a, a few days uh, is is you know is is torture and and I there's no other way to describe it there's no other sort of proper nomenclature uh to use to to talk about like what it is to keep somebody in a prison cell for 22 or 23 hours a day for for weeks or for months or for years and and last thing I'll say is if you haven't watched uh the Khalif Browder documentary series you absolutely must um it is on Netflix now uh and it is so illuminating about so many different facets of what's wrong with our criminal justice system, but you also get a chance to to see how detrimental and how harmful um, and how violent solitary confinement is to all of us um, and, and what it does to somebody's psyche. And Sam, you know, it makes me think of like people don't often think about the difference between jail and prison. And as you said, jail is before you've been convicted of anything. So it's like, you know, we think about all the things that people can't do when they're in jail, like vote um, in most places across the country. It's like, you actually haven't lost the right to anything. Even if the laws say that, you know, if you become convicted of a felony, you lose the right to vote. It's like, when you're in jail, you haven't been convicted of anything. And with ICE, you know, I just learned that in the first half of the year, ICE arrests rose by almost 40% with the biggest increase, with the sort of steepest increase in arrests of those who didn't have criminal convictions uh, but the deportation rates are actually going down. So it's like this interesting sort of mix of what's happening, which means that more people are actually just sort of being detained. They're like languishing in detention. And the 
it is anticipated that there'll be a 450% expansion of ICE contracted detention uh, capacity because of private prisons that'll be focused on family detention. So, uh, you know, the people are anticipating that there's not DACA um, legislation that comes forward soon and then they might be detained. There's this whole apparatus that actually doesn't get a lot of light put on it that we should immediately just dismantle. There's no good reason why there are this many beds or why there's a quota in the House Appropriations Bill or why we still put people in solitary, as we've all said. So my news is about fentanyl. I was reading this article that was published in the Baltimore Sun, and it talks about uh, China being the largest producer of fentanyl worldwide. And the drug is sent daily by a planter ship to Mexico where people traffic it across the border. But the most interesting part of this to me was that fentanyl, as the article says, when it's mixed with or mistaken for heroin, is 50 times more powerful than heroin. And it's actually the biggest killer in Baltimore this year. So it's estimated there are about 25,000 heroin users in the city. And just to give you perspective, fentanyl deaths in Maryland leapt from 186 total deaths in 2014 to more than 1,100 last year, one of the largest in the nation. And about 2,400 of the state medical examiner's 6,000 autopsies a year are drug-related. And they are so overwhelmed by drug-related deaths that the state medical examiner's office is risking losing its accreditation because they literally just cannot keep up. Uh, and I thought that was, that was wild. And I also didn't know that the city of Baltimore is actually tracking in real time the overdoses, but the, they can't, they have an app that shows you like where there's a spike, where there are three or more overdoses in one area, but they can't say exactly where the spike was. So they have to generalize the area because they don't want to incentivize users to go to that area to actually get the, to get the, the heroin or the fentanyl. So one of the biggest change is that and this was reported in the post, is that the DEA could freeze drug shipments that posed a, quote, imminent danger to the community, which gave broad authority to the DEA. But now the DEA must demonstrate that a company's actions represent, quote, a substantial likelihood of an immediate threat. And uh, what the official, what the person quoted in the article saying, he's a consultant now uh, who's suing the opioid industry. He's like that that burden is so high that it will literally never be met. So the DEA is actually effectively stripped of one of its main powers to stop suspected trafficking. In reading this reporting, one of the things that stood out uh, was to your latter point, DeRay, that uh, Marino and Hatch were the ones who uh, were co-sponsoring and putting forth this bill. Uh, and what's also important to recognize is that the the relationship of money to this bill being passed and so political action committees that represent the uh, drug industry contributed at least $1.5 million to 23 lawmakers who sponsored or co-sponsored four different versions of the bill, which included $100,000 to Marino and uh, $177,000 to Hatch. And overall, the drug industry spent $106 million lobbying Congress on this bill and other legislation between 2014 and 2016. So this reporting is important uh, because it obviously illuminates the corrupt nature of money and politics. But for context, it's also really important to note that 91% of the time, the person who, in congressional races, the person who uh, raises the most money and spends the most money is the person who wins. 
this conversation about money is so critically important, especially when you talk about this $106 million of lobbying expenses over just two years. So I used to be a lobbyist at the federal level for the nonprofit sector, though. Um, And we have (laughs) not nearly the amount of money that these large corporations do. And it's important to recognize who some of these folks are because they seem innocuous. So the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America spent almost $41 million. CVS Health spent almost $33 million. Rite Aid spent money. Walgreens spent money. The Healthcare Distribution Alliance spent money. Things that, just like CoreCivic, sound innocuous on their face. Um, And it's not just sending lobbyists to the Hill to kind of plead your case, right? It is also companies that sponsor big events of different caucuses and different members in their districts. And what looks like a great opportunity when, say, um, a pharmacy is giving out free flu shots in a in a district or something like that, it seems totally helpful, right? But charity is then used to mask the kind of things that are happening behind the scenes. That story that you told, Brittany, about what all of that money buys in terms of lobbying and influence, you know, it strikes me as how do we even compete with that, right? Like, what is the, like, first of all, there are policies that can help to limit the influence of money. But the reality is that that money has a way of getting around the law and influencing the law and influencing its enforcement anyway. And so, you know, how do we even compete with these huge corporations or other highly organized groups I think about police unions even uh, sort of in this way where they're just highly organized, have a lot of resources, a lot of influence, and manage to essentially get enacted whatever types of policies they want at the expense of so many people. Uh, and it's something that you know we have to figure out how to do uh, and figure out how to marshal people power in a way that can sort of offset that because it is what goes on you know every single day behind the scenes in Washington. So I've really appreciated uh, how the last couple of weeks we've had uh, pieces of good news that we've shared in addition to um, the pieces of news that uh, are of great concern to us and are often unsettling to us. And I just wanted to keep that going. Um, and so last week, something that got sort of lost in the deluge of, of news um, that we often see is that California Governor Jerry Brown uh, signed a piece of legislation that outlawed the use of life without parole for juveniles. And that made California the 20th state in the country uh, to outlaw juvenile life without parole. Um, and what's important to know is that the United States is the only country in the world that sentenced children to spend the rest of their lives in prison without the possibility of parole. Like we are the only country in the world that does this. The UN has long said that this is a violation of human rights. Every other country around the world uh, has ag- agreed to that sort of tenant. Um, and so this is this is a good thing, to be clear. Like the, the largest state in the country um, has made it so that they will not send children to spend the rest of their lives in prison. Um, but it's also important to note that uh, there's a lot more work to be done on this front. Like this should be federally mandated and, and we should really be questioning the idea of putting children in prison for long periods of time at all. But, but certainly, uh, this is progress in the right direction. And I think that's important. And I think it's important to celebrate the small victories, even if it means that we have more work to do. This is clearly a big and important win. If you're interested in 
doing more of that work. The client's talking about the sentencing project has been working on this for quite some time. I found out from them that there are actually 30 states that allow life without parole for juvenile offenders. Um, And in particular, there are three states that account for two-thirds of those sentences. Unsurprisingly, they are Pennsylvania, Michigan, and our oft-repeated friend, Louisiana. So, Clint, you know, didn't the Supreme Court recently rule that life without parole for juveniles was unconstitutional and that there should be either a resentencing or some sort of opportunity for parole? And how does that play into these existing state laws that still uh, allow for it? Yeah, so that's a great point. So the Supreme Court ruling that you're alluding to uh, made it so that the uh, the states could not enact mandatory juvenile life without parole. And so technically, uh, courts still have the option in, in quote, you know, special circumstances that uh, to to give a, a young person life without the possibility of parole. But what the Supreme Court said is that it simply can't be uh, the the idea of mandatory life without parole has to be removed, right? And so, in a lot of states throughout the country, um, this has had a, a range of different implications. In some states, that means you've had people who were sentenced to mandatory life without parole who have then gone up for parole and been released. And in some states, you've had folks who uh, were sentenced to mandatory life without parole um, who are in spaces where uh, the DAs are simply resentencing them to life without parole under the pretense that it is no longer mandatory, but that they should still spend the rest of their lives in prison for something they did when they were uh, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. So two things that I thought were interesting is that states can can remedy the unconstitutionality of the mandatory juvenile uh, life without parole sentences by permitting parole hearings uh, rather than actually going through the resentencing process. I thought that was uh, it's fascinating. Uh, the other thing is that this makes me think of all of the things that like we don't talk about in public, right? That, that don't make the news every night, but actually impact a whole lot of people. And that we tend to organize around the things that make the news every night. But this is something that if we could work with all the places that still have not complied in a way that actually gives young people their lives back, that could have a huge impact. So, you know, we're going to launch a project soon that tries to think about the biggest levers, uh, the things that people don't organize around now, but would actually have an impact that could take the carceral state to a different place, like that could just strip it of its power. And just for context, so the timeline of Supreme Court rulings that made this moment possible is that in 2010, Graham v. Florida, uh, the court ruled that it was unconstitutional to impose mandatory life sentences uh, without parole on juveniles who were committed of non-murder crimes. Um, Then they, in 2012, Miller v. Alabama made it so that uh, mandatory life sentences should not apply to people convicted of juveniles at all. And then in 2016, Montgomery v. Alabama made the Miller ruling retroactive and said that if you would uh, been convicted of mandatory life without parole as a juvenile, you had the opportunity to be up for parole or to be resentenced. Um, and so just to give some folks context about how we uh, arrived at this moment. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, 
great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the factor meals and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stresses happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. And now the conversation with Disha Dyer, the last social secretary in the Obama White House. Disha Dyer. <laughs> Thank you for joining me on Pod Save the People. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So you were the last and final social tech secretary. I was. In the White, in the Obama White House. Mm-hmm. What is the social secretary for some people it is like the chief party planner yes for yes. some people it is like the chief engagement officer yes uh, what what did you do okay so thanks again for having me it's so good to see you again um the social secretary is the person that is in charge of all of the events in the executive mansion so everything that happens under the actual in the actual white house was kind of under my umbrella, with the exception of the Easter egg roll and the tours, which are the visitor's office. But did so you didn't I do did, the Easter egg roll? I did not. No, Ellie Schaefer did that. Yes, Ellie did that for all, actually, all eight years of the Obama White House. Um, Ellie did that, and she, that office also did garden tours and regular tours. But we did everything from um, all the dignitary visits to all the parties, to the concerts, to all of the, the sleep on the lawn. So we did all of the events. And so I worked with my office the social office worked with like the executive residents, which was like the butlers and the chefs and all that, plus the West Wing staff and the Office of Public Engagement and all those other departments to make those events happen. So that's what we did. And how, did you, how did you become the 
Social secretary. Um, Were you an event planner your entire life? Well, no. Um, That's a great question. I think when I when I get the answer, I'll let you know. But um, you know, I became an intern at the White House when I was thirty one years old, um, and I just got hired when I was when I in two thousand ten. So I was thirty one, two thousand nine, an intern, just because I thought Barack Obama was this great person and I loved what he was doing for the country. He was black. Um, I love what the first lady was doing. I love what they, they look like me and they had these values like me. Um, so I always wanted to work for them, but I didn't know how I could do it. So I went back to college, um, when I was 30 at community college, Philadelphia, and then I applied for an internship in 2009 and they chose me to be part of the scheduling and travel team. Um, so I was an intern there. When I left, I said, this was wonderful, but I'm ready to go home to Philadelphia. Like DC is not my, like this place is not for me. And, um, I don't, I need, I got what I wanted to learn. I did everything. And then I got a phone call, actually an email from Alyssa Master Monaco in 2010 that said, um, we have a job opening. Um, will you be interested? And I replied back. Um, and then that was a uh, start of a seven year span at the White House. And I just kept kind of getting promoted. And then my last was a social secretary that I started in uh, 2015. So, yeah. What are some things that we don't know about the White House? One thing that <laughs> I think I'm meeting with the president in the Roosevelt Room mm-hmm. and um, the White House is just smaller than I thought. Yes, like you see is. it on TV and it's just like this massive yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. The ceilings are low. The mm-hmm. hallways are tight. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Roosevelt Room, as you know better than almost anybody, mm-hmm. that the president's chair is bigger than mm-hmm. right. everybody else's mm-hmm. chair. What, what are some things we don't know about the White House? I think the the thing that a lot of people don't know is really about the staff that work there. There is so many people behind what everyone sees, and there are people who have been there for years, like the curators, like the chefs, like the butlers. They have the operations crew, the electricians, the the seamstress. Like people have been there for years. There's actually there's a whole there's a housekeeping department that does all this like sewing of stuff because they 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 fix my dresses a lot. Um, so they they do all the sewing of a lot of things at the White House, including like curtains or they fix this or they fix whatever. And I think people don't realize what an operation it is behind the scenes. I mean, you know, even before I got there and before I was social secretary, I didn't realize that there were all these departments. I mean, I knew they were there, but I don't know how I thought this stuff got done, like elves or something. I didn't realize it was such an operation. But then I also didn't realize what it took to put something on there because the house is so old that you can't just, you know, attach a light to a chandelier. You know, the chandelier had been there since, you know, since Roosevelt. And you're like, oh, I can't just, you know, I can't put something there. They're like, no, you can't. I'm like, okay. Um, But you don't realize how precious everything is and that it's a museum. And so you can't, there's things like, there's certain foods that we wouldn't have because they're more greasy than others and we'd have a lot of people. So we don't want them, you know, putting grease on the chairs or putting, you know, like lamb chops is a good example. Um, You know, we don't want them doing stuff like that. So I think that people don't realize it's a museum that's run by a lot of people on top of being you know, an actual house and an actual office space. Now, you did the state dinners. I did. And uh, I know very little about event planning, but I believe that the seating mm-hmm. is a big deal. Yep. <laughs> uh, can you, I'm just interested in this. Mm-hmm. How did, uh, what was that like? Um, whew, hell, um, it was, it was an honor, uh, but it was hell. It was hard because, 
you had to remember everybody's interest, right? The president and first lady's interests were obviously, um, and the country's interest and what they were trying to accomplish was obviously number one. But then you have to remember all the people that are coming to the dinner who, you know, it's better for them to sit by somebody, this one person, or it's better for them not to sit by somebody. But then these are all people who are, are prominent. So they all have a request. And everybody, you know, wanted to know who's coming so I can sit by so-and-so. Can I create my table? I don't like this person. And I'm like, look, it's not about that. It's about coming to the White House for this dinner and, and the honor of being here. Um, so seating, <laughs> seating always came down to the last minute. Um, you know, I would love to say that we planned early in advance, but to be completely honest, we would get RSVPs up to the almost the day of the dinner. And so it was a constant, constant, constant changing of seating, changing of, you know, guests, changing of everything. Um, and so it was it was hard. You know, we got it done and no one ever not had a seat. So that was good of, of all the dinners I did, which was five of them. Um, but it was it was hard, you know. But yeah. And what was your relationship with the Obamas like? Oh, it was it's good. It was it still is good. Um, it was wonderful. I mean, they were you know, they were my my bosses, but they were also mentors. So I never got it confused that, you know, we were best friends or I was always, you know, and I feel like it was a healthy fear of um, of them in a sense of just like I had a fear of my bosses when I work anywhere else. I, I want to do a good job. I don't want to mess up. But I also saw such an example in them that they set for not only me, but for so many other people. Um, and so we always had we always had fun. I mean, like, you know, there were times where it was definitely stressful and there were harder times and more serious times. But then like when we got to do stuff like, you know, the last party or the BET event, you know, and talk about like DJs and music and how, you know, we wanted to have things. And you know, the first lady would say like, you know, do you know a good, you know, let's, do, let's get a good DJ. I'm like, oh, I can handle that. So we had a lot of fun with that. Um, and, you know, and I miss them a lot. Um, Did they like the parties? Oh, yes, they did. I mean, everybody liked the parties, right? Um, but um, they did. I mean, they, they love dancing. They love entertaining. That's not, a, that's not a secret at all. But I think that it was part of the first lady wanting to welcome and, you know, open up the house and the president. So not only, you know, to bring you know, the dignitaries in, but to bring everyday people in and to say, like, you know, you can do yoga and, you know, in the middle of the White House or we can swag surf, you know, at the White House. We're going to have a DJ here. We're going to have, you know, a bacon bar. We're going to have lots of things just because we're able to do that. And we want to open up the house and make people feel like this is their home, too. So we really always treated every party, I almost feel like, like a house party. Like we definitely and, you know, being from the hip hop era, I definitely tried to make it that way and make sure that we everybody felt comfortable. There was space to dance. The DJ was always great. Um, and I think we succeeded. We did a good job of that. What was it like being a black woman in this role in a black administration mm -hmm. uh, with the first black president, first <laughs> black first lady? Um, all black, everything. Um, it was a it was an honor, first and foremost, because there were a lot of people that were probably not black qualified to do this job as well and who had probably more qualifications than I did, who probably had more prestige or experience than I did. Um, and so I think that. You know, I had to remember that I didn't just represent myself. I represented like all the girls I mentor when I represented all the people who went to community college at 31 and all the people that, you know, like in my life had been evicted from a place before and, you know, who had bad credit, you know, who worked in the mall. So I think that I wanted everyday black women to look at me and be like, wow, like she, you know, she was able to accomplish all these things. And I think that people really my story was told through like a very filtered lens, obviously. Um, so now that I'm out of the White House, I'm able to tell my story more through speaking. And people are like, oh, I never knew that about you. I'm like, you know, like 
you know, me getting having a, you know, getting rid of a pregnancy is public. You know, it's always been public. And so people are like, oh, you had an abortion? I'm like, yes. Like, I mean, I, I normally talk about these things. And I feel like, you know, being a black woman, I, you know, love the fact that, you know, there were so many statistics on me and I and I fit in a lot of statistics. I did. I dropped out of school and got pregnant, did all these things. But yet I, I still was like, you know, I'm not going to fall victim to that. I'm going to go ahead and keep going. And so then I knew that I had to represent more than myself. Um, but it was also hard at times, you know, in the times that we're living in in the country. It was just, you know, I wanted to out, be outraged and I wanted to do, you know, get mad at, you know, the things that were going on, police brutality and other things. And I had to remember that I represented also the office of the president. So then you had to balance the two of those things. Um, so, you know, I think it was it was a balancing act. You know, it was an honor, but it was also a balancing act. Did you have to have a conversation with Michelle uh, before you became social secretary? Yes, <laughs> I did. Um, uh, you know, the first lady, you know, she, you know, interviewed, you know, the people that were for the job. And I think that, you know, the thing about the first lady when I got the when I talked to her about the job was she was never worried, I think, and I believe about my ability to do the job. I think that her, you know, her concern was that I had the confidence to do the job. And, you know, and I, and I appreciate that because I think that I didn't exude, I didn't feel like the most confident person when I would walk around the White House a lot. And I think part of it is the imposter syndrome that you feel like you have. Somebody's going to find out that I went to community college. Somebody's going to find out I was evicted, you know? So I think part of it was like, feeling like I would never equate to the people that were so high and mighty at the White House. And so the first lady talked to me about confidence a lot. She talked to me a lot about, um, you know, the right time to say the right things because uh, I'm, I'm from Philly. So I'm always ready to say whatever and, you know, just slash out. Um, so I think that she, you know, the conversations with her really set the tone for me on the job, because then I remembered that I wasn't just, you know, no matter what I thought, I had to think things through. And then I also had to believe that I could do it. And so there were a lot of times that even during the two year, the years I was social secretary, you know, the first day in the president was like, you got this, like, you got it, you got it. And I'd be like, are you, are you sure? Like, I'm good, you know, and, you know, towards the end, I got more comfortable. But that's a that was something that was, you know, nonstop in my brain, that conversation about confidence and believing in yourself and standing up for what you believe, but knowing when it's right to do it and when you need to just like think about it before you say something or do something. Yeah. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com the living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. What are you most proud of with your time at the White House? Mm, um, I think that um, I'm most proud of the way that 
you know, following Mrs. Obama's lead of opening up the house. I mean, we really, honestly, there were times where we would have, you know, I remember one time we had people come through the house that had, you know, a record and they had issues and we were like, oh, we're not sure if they can come in. And I remember, you know, us making a decision and saying, you know, if we have athletes in here who have records and athletes who, you know, are getting in trouble, then why they come here for championship things and they got in trouble. So why can't kids? And I feel like, you know, being able to stand up and say that that's the right thing to do um, because the house shouldn't just be there for the White House. I call it just the house, but the White House shouldn't just be there for the prim and proper. It should be for everyone. So I think that my most proud thing is opening up the house and bringing regular people there, like friends of mine that were just DJs at the club in Philly and friends who were street musicians in Philly or, you know, people who never thought they would see the inside of the White House. Um, That was probably my most proud moment of being able to do that. Because I never thought I'd be there. So being able to open it up for other people and to help Mrs. Obama do that was a big deal for me. Were there stories that that stand out to you as like moments that either you saw the Obama's experience uh, Mm -hmm. or that you experienced? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think the the big moments that we had, for instance, like the Pope on the lawn with 11,000 people, I think that— those moments made me feel like I could do anything. Like I was just like, we just orchestrated this for the Pope. And I am, you know, the president introduced me to the Pope as the one who helped put all this together. And he did, he introduced me to the Pope. I wasn't obvious, you know, and I was just like, I was floored. But I think in those moments, like I remember having tears, I slept on my floor that night at my office the night before the Pope. And I remember having tears in my eyes. I was thinking to myself, like I have the Pope and President Obama and they're both thanking me for something. And so I look at moments like that. Obviously we had a lot of other moments at the White House. Like, you know, when we had kids come in and we had, um, you know, you know, senior citizens who are black, who were like a hundred thinking they would never see this and they would just break down and cry. And, I would always want to keep the president and first lady on time. So I'd always go to move people along. I'm sure you experienced it when you were there. Just like move along, like say hello, hug, hug. But with the older black people, I just couldn't do, we couldn't do that. You know, I mean, and, I mean not only that, but they probably would snap, but we also couldn't do that. And I think that those moments where there's the elderly black people who never thought they would see such a thing and that they're able to touch his face for real. You're just like, <laughs> to me, I'm just like, oh, don't do that. But then I'm just like, I got to understand what it means to them. And and those moments, I think, you know, from from the Pope to seeing that were things that just, they forever changed me. And uh, can you tell the story of the socks? Oh, the socks. So, so there was an older black lady who came through and she like most black people do, they have everything Obama. So everything from watches to headbands to, you know, motifs in their house, mosaic drawings. And she had a pair of socks that she wanted to give the president. And um, I, being the social secretary, and I think it was early on, wanted to be very prim and proper, uh, told this older black woman that she could not give the socks to the president. Um, She... uh, fussed at me very much so um but I, I stood my ground um so then when she went to go meet him um she mentioned the socks and then he's like where are the socks and then pulled out the socks and, and I was I'm over there embarrassed and like oh my goodness she's gonna pull out the socks but then I realized that he was like oh these are nice thank you for bringing these to me my you know and I'm like there's socks but then I understood that that's a division of if Disha was the citizen not the social secretary how much I would love that moment but then I had to, you know, realize that I had to make sure that I didn't get jaded like that and say, you couldn't do that. You can't do that because he's looking at me kind of like, 
what's the big deal? They're silent. Like, thank you so much. And then she gave me a, a funny, bad, ugly look. And then, you know, kept it moving. Uh, but yeah, but, you know, I, I wonder if he still has those socks. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> that was early on. I love it. Do you have any relationship with the with the with your replacement in the Trump administration? Um, the social secretaries have a, a kind of a, a club. You know, we all get together once in a while. Um, we, you know, as far as having a, a relationship, you know, the administration does their own thing, you know, so there isn't really um, a need to, you know, be in touch all the time or anything like that. But they, you know, it's a different principle. So, you know, while I do talk to her once in a while, you What's know. What's a principle? A principle, sorry. It's a different, so a different principle is like the Obamas and the Trumps. So different people that are in power. Um, so, you know, what we did, they're not going to do now and they haven't done. So it's kind of like, there's really no need for us to constantly talk or anything like that. Um, you know, if she would call me and need something, obviously I would answer. I'm not rude, but I think that, you know, for the most part, you know, she works with her, her principles and I worked with mine. What advice do you have for people who either are jaded in this moment, Mm -hmm. who have lost hope, who, um, are frustrated, Mm -hmm. As somebody who has been on the inside of a HOPE administration Mm -hmm. and is now a citizen on the outside in a very different administration, Mm -hmm. what do you you say to people who say, Disha, what do I do? Well, first, you know, um, first, take care of yourself, because I feel like— Right now, we're also we're also amped up with good reason, as we should be, um, about everything. But I also feel like it can make you tired and weary and mentally um, defeat, feel mentally defeated. So first, I would say, like, check where you are with it. You know, like I think about now these kids that are growing up in this administration, you know, they're going to have a lot of trauma. <laughs> you know, they're going to feel very traumatized because they some of them feel like their parents are going to be deported or their dad's going to be shot or, you know, and they're not going to have money for college because there's nothing there, you know, because these you know, things are being wiped away. So I would say first, you know, take care of your mental health and check where you are before you decide to, you know, I want to go fight this or do that because, you know, you don't want to wear yourself out. So that's the first thing I say. The second thing I say is find out where you will be an impact and go with it. Um, You know, some people, their strong suit is not knocking on doors or going out and marching. Some people are better writing checks. You know, I if you that's what you can do, then that's what you should do. And I feel like people need to do exactly what their strong suit is. I feel like right, and that's how we get people who are, you know, they say like all these people, you know, march for the women's march, and it was wonderful. But where are those people? Like where, like there's so much going on right now. Like where are those people? And they came out for that moment, which is great. But what about the other moments that we need them right now? You know, if, if your strong suit was, you know, that you can write a check or you can, you know, you can organize an event or you can just, you know, check people in a door, find out what you can do and do that. You know, don't feel like you have to be like every other activist out there and say, well, this person's doing this. I want to be just like them. It's like, but that, that might not be your thing. So I feel like you should do something after you take care of yourself, figure out what you're good at. And then apply it to something that you believe in and understand that everybody, everybody needs everything right now. Like we need everything. So if your strong suit is, you know, rescuing, you know, animals, to be honest, from a flood ravaged place like in the world, if that's what you're going to go do, then just go do it. Don't feel like you have to be like, you know, if the Women's March is not your thing. Don't feel bad about that. Like, don't feel shamed into like, well, I should care about this. Yes, you should care about it. I feel but if you don't care about it enough to be a true person in that cause, 
Go do something that you do care enough about. Know that there are so many people out here that are fighting with you on so many things that you're not alone in what you feel. And I feel like there's so many communities right now, especially communities of color, especially women of color, that are just like support systems for each other being like, you know, we need to hold each other accountable and like hold each other up because no one else really does. So I feel like there's support out there for when you need it. But, you know, take a rest when you need to, but then come back when you're ready. What's next for you? What's next for me? Um, what's next for me is, um, you know, I run an organization called B-Girl World, and we just launched our second class at Philadelphia. We teach young Black girls about travel, global education, um, study abroad, careers in travel, careers at travel. So busy with that. I'm heading to New York to take a position at a foundation um, just for six months, uh, going to, you know, learn about the philanthropy side of life, um, worked on the government side of life, which is completely opposite from the philanthropy side of life. Um, so looking forward to doing that, um, continuing to speak and, you know, working on a proposal for a book and, you know, just living and, you know, ready for 2018 and, you know, ready to put, you know, to go to the middle of America and hopefully make a change and knock on some people's doors, have some spaghetti with some folks and let them know, like, we got to do something. Well, thank you. Disha Dyer. <laughs> you're welcome, Dorothy. Thank you for having me. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. And now this conversation with Keila Crane, Assistant General Counsel at the NAACP, and Ari Kalu, Yale Law student, talking about the census. Ari and Keila, thank you so much for joining us today on Five of the People. Excited to have you both here. Thanks for having us, DeRay. Thanks for having us. So let's just start out with who you are and what brought you to the work of justice. Sure. Well, I'm Keila Crane. Um, I'm Assistant General Counsel for the NAACP National Headquarters. Um, I started in activism with the NAACP um, in college uh, at South Carolina State University um, as a, the chapter president there and just kind of continued um, and then uh, decided to go to law school to be um, a civil rights attorney. So I went to Howard for law school um, and then was able and fortunate enough to come back to the NAACP um, as an attorney. So uh, that's kind of my, that's a short version of of my role um, here. And some of the work that I do is with uh, voting rights and criminal justice and environmental justice. And I'm Ari. I'm a second year law student at Yale Law School. Um, And I guess I came to the work of justice and kind of coming to law school and um, always kind of feeling um, compelled to just be an activist or an advocate on behalf of um, people of color, on behalf of women. Um, As a black woman, I kind of have felt um, particular experiences, whether it's in school or just 
in general, um, feeling kind of uh, systematically ignored. And so that's kind of the work that I do in law school, um, both in the clinic that I'm working with Keila on voting rights issues in, um, specifically partnering with the NAACP on voting rights, and then also other criminal justice work in New Haven. Cool. Now, how did the two of you uh, come to work together? Yeah, so uh, the general counsel for the NAACP, uh, Brad Barry, is a graduate of Yale Law School, um, and he worked uh, collaboratively with the supervising attorney for uh, the Yale Clinic, and um, the NAACP decided to work with Yale on um, voting rights issues, which we believe are of great importance both here at the NAACP and at Yale. Um, and in January, uh, we decided to begin um, a census um, project with uh, the Yale Law School Rule of Law Clinic to really look um, holistically at the census and how we can prepare uh, the NAACP's units all across the country uh, to get ready for the 2020 census. And you, you all have come together around a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit against the Commerce Department about the census as, as you started to talk about why the census? Why do you think, why did you choose that as the site to contest in the courts or uh, as, as one of the most important battles that you'd undertake together? Yeah, well, the census is incredibly important. Um, and in the climate that we're currently in, um, it's even more important. So the census um, is constitutionally mandated that each um, every 10 years uh, we count how many people uh, reside here in the United States. Um, and it has an impact on um, how many, uh, how much money goes into Title I schools or Section 8 housing um, or 137 other different um entities either in whole or in part are funded based upon census data, but it also impacts um, reapportionment. How many congressional members does each state have? Um, and as you all know, because uh, I know that your listeners uh, are very astute, that that directly impacts upon uh, things like uh, the electoral college, where depending upon how many people you have um, representing you in Congress um, in the House of Representatives talks about uh, directly correlates with your electoral college strength. Um, And that also determines who becomes president of the United States, obviously. So um, there's so many different things um, that the census impacts and why it's so very important for us uh, to ensure that each person is counted. And uh, historically um, the, um, People of color, uh, low-income people have not been um, counted accurately by the census. And so we wanted to make sure that um, we are starting on the ground early, getting prepared, getting our communities prepared uh, for the census, making sure that um, they know about some of the changes that will be coming in the census, and making sure that the Census Bureau is adequately uh, prepared, funded, and ready um, to to count each person that resides in the country. In the years leading up to the 2020 census, the uh, Census Bureau has suffered from serious upsets that's, uh, that really affect its functioning and its ability to carry out the census. Um, some of those upsets or problems are budgetary uncertainty and underfunding, um, staffing problems, uh, most uh, as a result of a hiring freeze that the Trump administration imposed earlier this year. 
And the Bureau has suffered from a serious leadership crisis. Its director resigned in May of 2020. So kind of with all those issues, census experts do not think the Bureau is on track to conduct a fair and accurate 2020 census. And this is a huge um, issue for the NAACP because a flawed census that fails to accurately count everyone would be devastating on communities of color in terms of resources and political power. Uh, So because NAACP is invested in voting rights and making sure everyone is counted in the census, it decided to take action on this. So there's a law that's called the Freedom of Information Act. And under this law, U.S. citizens and organizations have a right to request information from the federal government. And federal agencies must disclose certain records to the public. Um, so in June 2017, under this law, the NAACP filed a, what we call FOIA request seeking information from the Census Bureau. And the NAACP did this so that um, it could better understand the Bureau's deficiencies so that it can um, mobilize its network if necessary. And also, it wanted to prompt the government to be more transparent about its preparations for the census. So some of the things that the NAACP uh, asked for in its request were records related to hiring, um, records related to any canceled tests that the Bureau canceled um, that would be really important and necessary to trial run the census. The NAACP also sought records around um, the Bureau's outreach to hard to count communities, including communities of color. And the NAACP also um, sought information related to the digitization of the census. And so under this law, the, uh, the federal government must respond within a set amount of time, which is 20 days. And so the NAACP filed this request in June, but months went by and the Census Bureau didn't produce any records, did not really respond to in the way that the NAACP was asking it to. And when the Bureau finally did respond, um, it did not uh, give records that addressed really any of the NAACP's concerns. So this is what this lawsuit is about. The NAACP filed this lawsuit because the government did not respond in a timely, uh, in a timely manner, did not disclose the records in a timely manner. So this lawsuit is the NAACP acting to compel the government to release these records and be transparent about its preparations for 2020. Now, what is the crux of the the lawsuit that you have against the Commerce Department? Like, what do you what are you asking for? What do you want? Sure. So. Um, the NAACP wants to better understand, as Kilo was describing, how to effectively mobilize its network to increase census response rates. And so in order to do that, the NAACP um, filed uh, or basically requested that the Census Bureau release records on a number of items. Um, Some of uh, the requests asked for more information on a hiring freeze that the Trump administration implemented earlier this year and what the Bureau, what plans the Bureau was going to um, take to basically account for maybe less staff that it may have in terms of preparing for the census. The the request also asked for more information on certain tests uh, that were canceled. There were certain tests that were to be um, carried out in. Uh, different communities, um, say rural communities or um, um, 
communities of color and um, some of those tests were canceled. And so the NAACP wanted to understand um, what were the records around this test? Why were they canceled? Um, just basically, what is the Bureau doing if it's um, in terms of preparing for 2020 if it's canceling tests? Um, the NAACP also requested more information on the Bureau's plans to digitize the census and uh, make it um, online a questionnaire response. Also, it wanted to understand the kinds of outreach the Bureau was going to um, do in communities of color, which it calls hard-to-count communities. And so traditionally, it will do, say, communications campaigns or outreach campaigns. And so the NWCP requested for records related to that as well. And what do you think are some misconceptions about the about the census or things that people just might not know that they should know? A lot of time people um, don't think it's important. Um, you know, sometimes you get the American uh, Community Survey that is sent out in between um, the zero numbered years uh, to get a kind of a yearly snapshot about the population. People don't fill it out or they don't think that it's important. Um, I believe we've seen uh, recent reports in the news that each decade, less and less people have actually filled out the census um, when it's come around. Um, but it's so gravely important because, uh, like we were saying early, um, it's tied directly to resources that your local community will get. Um, so if you come um, from an area where they have Title I schools or schools that are uh, largely made up of uh, young people who um, need free or reduced lunch, that money um, is given out depending upon how many people are in that particular community. Um, and if there are uh, folks that are undercounted within that local community because uh, they did not fill out the census, then that means a reduced number of resources that will go um, to that community. Also, looking at how um, redistricting plays with the census, I mean, it's directly proportional, um, particularly with the federal uh, congressional seats. Um, each congressional seat is supposed to have about around about 750,000 people in it. And if you undercount those folks, um, then the amount of congressional seats that a major city like Detroit, which is near my hometown, um, or Baltimore may have will be less because um, people were not counted for their full strength in the city, uh, which means that your uh, voting uh, strength in Congress will be reduced. And those uh, those. that representative will be sent somewhere else. So it's gravely important that we uh, learn more about the census. Um, There's another project that we're uh, working with um, the Yale team about prison gerrymandering, uh, where people are um, not counted in um, where they come from, but where they're currently incarcerated, which also strips resources. Because as you know, um, many of the jails are not built in communities of color. They're built in uh, rural towns and districts, which means that, um, and as you also know, that 60% of the population in our prison system, unfortunately, is made up of people who are black and brown. And so um, instead of counting uh, those persons who are incarcerated from where they used to live, they're counted where they currently are incarcerated. So that diverts resources out of uh, their hometown and into those rural spaces. Um, And while we want to make sure that everybody has their appropriate resources, we don't want to strip 
um, resources. Once again, you strip the person from their town by being incarcerated, but you're also stripping dollars that are so crucially needed um, in those communities, which are tied to to the census. And so, I mean, it's it's. Um, I think during the project, um, we have learned uh, how many different aspects of our life is tied to the census. And I think that that's, um, it's really important that in the two and a half years that we have before the 2020 census that um, real social, um, con- socially conscious folks, activists like ourselves really get to know um, what all the census is about and making sure that we empower our communities on the ground to um, fill out the census and try to dispel some myths um, around what the government can do with the census data um, in order to make sure that we have an accurate count. Is there anything that the public can do? Is there anything that we can do to help you out? Yeah, I I think um, there's a number of things that um, you can do to help us out. Um, And not necessarily with the lawsuit in particular, because that will kind of go through its own course. Um, But I would say one is making making sure that our um, communities know about the census and the changes that are happening. Um, Sometimes it happens uh, with all the crazy other craziness that's going on um, in the country right now with this administration, I think think people are not really paying attention to the census um, until our litigation was filed. And so getting to know about the census and telling people um, in your local communities about the changes that um, are contemplated to be taking place, like Ari was saying about the digitization port, uh, piece. While, you know, myself and Ari and you and um, a lot of your listeners are really astute with um, technology, many of our community members are not. Um, um, as we travel around the country talking about uh, the census, I interact with many of our members who know folks who don't have access to the internet or don't um, utilize a smartphone or don't know how to work a computer. Um, And if they are in any of those buckets, uh, the propensity for them to be undercounted because of the digitization issue is is so much greater. Um, So really getting our people um, to understand about uh, the census and the digitization Um, Another thing is to talk to your local uh, state reps um, and figure out how are they planning for the census. Um, Federally, you're required, they're required to use the census data to draw congressional lines, but not necessarily on the state and local level. So figure out, you know, who is in the census committee for your local state. um, And you could possibly be a part of that, right? So seeing how you can be more active in the census part. Uh, but And also, as you know, we have some upcoming races that will directly impact redistricting. Um, and I know that you are interested in voting rights and um, Virginia and New Jersey have a gubernatorial election this year um, that is really flying under the radar and people need to get out and vote in Virginia and New Jersey uh, because a governor that will be um, elected this year will still be in office by the time the census rolls around. And so when you get ready for, um, when you get ready to sign these redistricting plans uh, that the legislature puts forth, that will be the governor that will be in office. Um, And then getting ready for next year for all the different state and local elections and the gubernatorial elections that happen next year. um, People need to be getting ready for that as well. So it's, 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 um, 
it's not just a one-off for the census kind of out here in the Valley somewhere off by itself, but it really is a part of a greater voting rights issue that we really need to be paying attention to. Got it. That's really helpful. Is there anywhere that people can go to learn more information about the work that you're doing, the work that you, you all are doing together or to just learn about the census itself? Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> go ahead. yeah I was actually just telling you earlier that the NAACP has some really terrific resources on their website about the census. Um, so if you just go to their website, which is NAACP.org and search for census or even type into Google NAACP census, they have fact sheets on it that will kind of break it down to you. Why is the census important? The historical undercounting of communities of color. And so that could be useful for just educating um, yourself and helping to share the information with your friends and family. Um, also, in terms of our work, we're working, the law school clinic is working on um, putting up more information about our work on the website. Um, the clinic is called the Rule of Law Clinic. And um, if you kind of just search for that on Google with Yale Law School, you can find out more on the work we're doing. Um, it's really a clinic with very compassionate and brilliant students. It's not just voting rights. Um, they also work on things like anti-discrimination, um, climate change, and national security. So if you're able to look for that um, rule of law clinic, then you can find out about other projects that the, the team is working on. And then, of course, um, outside of just searching census on our website, please also go to the NAACP.org uh, website to see about all of the different information um, and work that we're doing. Um, and you'll be able to keep um, updated on the litigation that we have with the Rule of Law Clinic as well. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us today on Potsy of the People. I'm excited to, to track this. and I learned more about the census. Hope to stay in touch. And I consider you both friends of the pod. Thanks, Deray. It was great to be with you. Thanks, Deray. Well, that's it. Thanks for joining today on Pod Save the People. Make sure you tell a friend, make sure you rate it, and I'll see you back next week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.